Amen. Amen. Hey, so last week we got together and we studied or we considered the life of Joseph. Now, Joseph is this key critical character who gets the people of God into Egypt so they might experience the provision of God. And so there was a famine that was headed their way, and they needed to be cared for, and so God needed to get them to Egypt. And so Joseph presents us with the vehicle for accomplishing that. And so from Joseph, today we consider the life of Moses. Now when you consider, when you think about the life of Moses, I want you to think about it conceptually in terms of kind of three different events. And each one of these events centers around the idea or, or the theme of water. And so you've got the Red Sea, you've got his birth in the Nile, and then you've got, uh, close to the end of his life, his experience at the waters of Meribah. But I want to start, I want to start at the Red Sea. Now, if you're not familiar with the story of Moses, kind of at this point, Moses has been this central character working and functioning for the deliverance of God's people, leading them up after 430 years of slavery in the land of Egypt. And so God has sent plagues upon Pharaoh, and ultimately Pharaoh lets God's people go, and so they're there, and God's people are standing at the edge of the Red Sea, and as they look behind them, what they see is an encroaching army. They see the Egyptians barreling down upon their position, and they look at Moses, and in that moment, they think, this isn't the guy. He's failed us. He's led us the wrong direction. There, this isn't the guy. In fact, in verse 11, it says, they said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt that you have taken us away to die in the wilderness? What have you done to us in bringing us out of Egypt? They look at him, and they say, you are woefully inadequate for this task. We're going to die. They're going to kill us. That's all there is to it. And Moses, in this moment of severe testing of his leadership before these people, offers them these instructive words. Look at verses 13 and 14. It says, And Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians... Whom you see today, you shall never see again. In verse 14, he said, the Lord will fight for you. You have only to be silent. And so they thought death was imminent. They thought that everything was about to be over for them. In their conception of all the things they'd experienced and all the things they'd gone through, they thought, well, this has been a fun jaunt, but now life's over and we're all about to die. And then Moses gives them these instructive words, stand firm, fear not, and watch God. Essentially, you just need to sit back, do nothing. God's going to accomplish everything. So what does God do? He sends, essentially, this, this, this flaming cloud to come around behind them and to keep them safe, and the Egyptian army is unable to continue to advance on them. So in the midst of this, and God doing this, and keeping the people steadfast and safe over the course of the night, God says to Moses, this is how we're going to cross the Red Sea. And in chapter 14, in verses 21 and 22, Moses follows the direction of God. It says, Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and the Lord drove the sea back by a strong east wind all the night, and he made the sea dry land. And the waters were divided, and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground, the waters being a wall to them on their right and a wall to them on their left. 
You know, in the midst of this, Moses is kind of standing there. He's got this staff that God has given him uh, to do miracles and to, and to be this kind of conduit of the power of God. And God essentially says to him, listen, hold this staff out. And in the midst of holding this staff out, I'm going to do something amazing that none of these people can, can speak to, none of these people can rationalize, none of these people would expect to be accomplished. So God sends this wind, and it pushes the waters back, so it's an out-and-out -out wall to the left and the right, and they cross, and it's probably half-mile uh, barrier in the midst of it. You know, Pharaoh's army sees that, and they begin to think, hot dog, what an amazing way to pursue the people of God. So they head out into the midst of this, and what does God do? God turns to Moses, and he said, check this out, stretch out your hand again. Stretch out your hand again. In chapter 14, and verse 26, it says, Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the sea, that the waters may come back on the Egyptians, upon their chariots, and upon their horsemen. And that's exactly what happened. The walls that had stood in a heap become crashing down and their chariots and their horsemen and the Egyptian army is washed away on the power of God at display, overcoming and vanquishing their foes. So this, this high watermark for the ministry of Moses. And then the text tells us, Moses writes for us, in verse 31 it says, Israel saw the great power that the Lord used against the Egyptians. And how did it result? It says, so that the people feared the Lord, and they believed in the Lord and in his servant Moses. You see, God was accomplishing a couple of different things. One, he wanted them to see his power over their enemy. And he wanted them to see his faithfulness in the person of Moses. God had chosen and especially appointed Moses to work for the deliverance of his people. And God needed the Israelites to see his power at work in his servant for their good. And that's what he accomplished. But we have this understanding and kind of like who is Moses and how does he get there? Well, at the very beginning of the book of Exodus, when it opens up, we begin to recognize that there's this significant issue has transpired, has taken place since the days of Joseph. Verse 8 tells us that now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So Joseph is there and everybody's great in the land. Joseph dies, a couple of generations go on, and this new king comes up. He says, listen, listen, I look around and these Israelites, they're having babies like crazy. And we got to do something about this because there's going to come a day that if our, an enemy attacks us and they side with our enemies, it's bad news. So here's the deal. We're going to make life pretty hard on them. And the text goes on and essentially says, the worse he made it on them, the more they multiplied in number. So then the Pharaoh comes along and he says, I don't know why this idea didn't come to me uh, initially. This is how we're going to do this. We're going to work to exterminate their population by eradicating male-born children. So he brings kind of the head of the order of Israelite midwives up, uh, Pua and Shifra. And he says, this is what you're going to do. When you find out that the Israelites are about to have children, you're going to go in there, and if it's a male, you're going to kill it. And if it's a little girl, you're just going to let it go, and it's going to be all well and good. Well, Pharaoh just thinks, this is this epiphany moment. I, I, I don't know why I didn't think about this earlier. This is how we deal with it. Well, Pharaoh's sitting back, and he's weaving papyrus or whatever it is Pharaohs do, and the report gets to him, uh, Pua and Shifra, I don't, I don't think they're really affecting any change they continue to have unchecked male-born children so he calls them in he says what's the deal and they said you don't understand 
Those Hebrew women, the text just kind of really just kind of casualizes this for us. It says they are vigorous and unlike Egyptian women. They have babies much faster, much better than we can. By the time we're able to mobilize people and call them on their cells and get them on their pagers, baby's already born and they're, they're slapping powder on the bottom. I mean, there's just nothing we can do, Pharaoh. Oh, he's pretty vexed by this. And he says, okay, well, I really thought that was going to be the thing. I really thought that was going to take care of it. And then he says, aha, check this out, verse 22. And he says, then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews, so not just a baby, we're going to go out, we're going to rally up all these sons, you shall cast them into the Nile. Pharaoh decides that, that selective abortion isn't working for him, so he's going to go out and do full eradication of male-born children for the Hebrews. Well, the text opens up in verse 1 in chapter 2, and it says, Now a man from the house of Levi. So you have this anonymous man and then this anonymous woman. They come together, and they have this child. And the, and the child is gorgeous, like every child who's born is gorgeous. And the mother begins to raise him. And around about the time he hits three months of age, she can't conceal him. She can't hide him any longer. So the Lord implants in her this idea that she's going to take him, and she's going she's to weave uh, some bulrushes together. She's going to paint the inside with bitumen. And she's going to place this baby in there, in this ark, if you will. And she's going to put it into the Nile. And she's going to entrust this child to the Lord. Well, what has God done? God sends an enemy. God sends down the daughter of Pharaoh. And she's down and she's walking with her ladies as they would often do along the Nile. Just saying, oh, the Nile's so great. And they're singing this song. And, and, and just kind of going along, and she sees this thing coming up to her, and she looks inside, and she says the most remarkable thing. Remember, she's of the house of Pharaoh. She's of the engineer of an atrocity. She's of the engineer of a genocide, selective abortion, moved into full-born eradication. But she sees the basket. Verse 6, chapter 2, when she opened it, she saw the child, and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him. And she says, this is one of the Hebrew children. Y'all, God changed this woman's heart. There's no reason she should care for this child outside God's common grace at work in her heart. There's no reason that she should look at this child, identify it as an enemy of her father's household, and have pity on him. But that's exactly what God planted in her heart to accomplish. So Moses, his sister, has been walking along, sees this, walks up, says, oh, look at that. Behold, a baby. Isn't he cute? And she says, oh, he's adorable. And she says, well, how about I go out and, and, and find a woman to nurse him? And so he is provided for, he is cared for, he is raised in his parents' home, and then he's entrusted into the hands of his foe. God cares for his people. God cares for his people, and he doesn't care who he uses to accomplish his purposes. God implanted in this woman's heart compassion and pity upon an enemy so that God's people would be cared for, so that God's people would endure. So we see Moses raised in the house of Pharaoh. He runs away after he murders an Egyptian. He comes to be uh, married to, uh, to uh, just a phenomenal woman who's father gives him great advice he's hanging out with his father-in-law Jethro which is a great name for every father-in-law I call mine Jethro that's not his name but that's how we roll 
And so he's getting this great advice. He goes back. He meets with the Lord in a burning bush. And God says, I'm going to send you. You're going to redeem these people. You're going to deliver them. And Moses said, but, 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 I just can't, but, but, but to speak just really well. He says, fine, you can take your brother. He's rather erudite. Take him. And so we see this tag team effort of erudition and power delivered through weakness. So God delivers his people with the hand of Moses. Moses takes the people, and he is faithful, and these people are rebellious and rebellious and rebellious. And for decades of faithful service, he is leading them to the promised land. And what we find is terrific sadness in the midst of these things. If you can find it quickly, flip to Numbers in chapter 20. Numbers in chapter 20. Numbers chapter 20 opens up, and what we see is that Moses' sister, Miriam, has died. And Moses, once again, finds himself dealing with the complaints of the people. There's no water for them. And they run through this litany of things that they're super frustrated with Moses about. And they run through the same thing they said in the beginning. They said, would that we had perished when our brothers perished before the Lord. Why have you brought out the assembly of the Lord into the wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to this, listen to how they describe it, this evil place. It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates. There's no water to drink. Moses and Aaron surely think the people are going to be destroyed. And so they run to the tent of meeting. They fall upon their face. The Lord, instead of bringing torment, instead of bringing punishment upon the people, he speaks to Moses in this place. Verse 7 says, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, take the staff. You remember this is the staff that God used to part the waters. He says, take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron and your brother, and tell the rock before the eyes of, it, before the eyes of this people to yield its water. So that you shall bring out water of the rock for them and give drink to the congregation for their cattle. In verse 9, we read essentially that Moses is obedient. Grabs his staff, he goes before the people, he's got them all together. And listen to how he refers to them in verse 10. He says, hear now you rebels. Moses is weary, he's led the people for a number of years. Moses is irritated in the midst of leading the people. What he continually sees in them is rebellion and hardness of heart. And so he decries them, referring to them as rebels. He says, hear now, you rebels. Shall we bring water for you up out of this rock? And Moses lifted his hand, and instead of speaking to the rock, he struck the rock. And striking the rock, water pours forth from the rock. And I want you to look at this. It says the congregation drank and their livestock. The congregation didn't care how he accomplished it. They were strictly utilitarian in their energy. They weren't fully aware that Moses had disobeyed the Lord. All they knew is they wanted water and they had water. All they were concerned with was having their needs met. But God is not utilitarian as he approaches his leadership. So it says, the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, because you did not believe in me. Listen to that. Moses has got to evaluate his actions and has God look piercingly into his heart. And he says, because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. 
And so what we find is within the confines of this chapter, Moses' brother is stripped of his position and he dies. And what we find, and we read this heartbreaking message, that Moses will not enter the land, the land that he's traveled for 40 years to bring this people into, he will not see, he will not experience. But God is faithful to provide for his people. So God raises up other leadership. You see, at the end of Moses' life, at the end of the book of Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 34, as it closes out, we see this written almost parenthetically. Starting in verse 10, it says, And there was not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face, none like him for all the signs and wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. To Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land and all the mighty power and all the great deeds and the terror that Moses did in the sight of Israel. You see, Moses in Deuteronomy 18 and then again in Deuteronomy 34 tells the people, look for someone like me. Look for a prophet to be raised up like me. Look for God to do something and God to equip and take care of his people as he raises someone up like me. As we consider the life of Moses... We see God's sovereign power through his imperfect delivery. Time and time again, Moses is at the edge of the Red Sea. And what happens? It's not Moses and his mystical staff driving back the waters. That's just a focal point for God's people to look at as they see the power of God on display. God pushes back the waters. God brings the water back. God sent the manna. God sent the quail. God destroyed the enemies. God upheld the people. God's justice was visited upon them when the spies rebelled. God was keeping Moses safe over the decades, and it is God Moses disbelieved. We see God's supernatural intervention. Intervention is necessary and shows his character. It wasn't that Pharaoh had a whole bunch of horrid daughters and it just by happenstance, his one delightful, lovely daughter who loved everybody and it didn't matter who it was, had been walking on those banks. When God needed to preserve his leader, God implanted into her heart compassion. God, for no other reason other than he might receive glory, placed compassion in this woman's heart towards an innocent child. God's glory and his sovereignty is on display in preserving and caring for the life of Moses. And God's glory is devastated. And his holiness is not held up in the failure of Moses. James gives us a warning in James chapter 3 and verse 1. He says, not many of you should seek leadership for they are held to higher authority and accountability. Listen, repeatedly over the last year, two years, three years, we've seen increased scrutiny upon leadership in churches and religious nonprofits, and it is a good thing. It was already there, the Lord peering into their hearts and holding them accountable. Finally, we begin to see the people of God raising up and saying, we won't have this in our churches. We won't have this in our nonprofits. We don't care about donors. We don't care about people that you've changed and how it's going to affect him. The Lord will be upheld as holy. And as God people, God's people in churches and nonprofits and people in our community, if we hear that our leaders are failing, if we hear that their hearts don't reflect the Lord's glory, then we say, you're not the leader for us because you're not submitting to the Lord. Listen, 
It's going to cost pastors jobs. It's going to cost head of nonprofits their responsibility. And we're going to see churches and nonprofits close. And it is good. The winnowing fork of our Lord is mightily at work in their hearts. And we might as well see it visibly displayed in his churches and in his nonprofits. It is a shame and a disappointment that the church of Jesus Christ has long endured despots in pulpits and despots in nonprofits. Men who seem to place themselves above accountability. And they say, I am the man of God or I am the woman of God. No, you are not. You think God couldn't bring his people into the land without Moses? He did it without Moses. He let Moses see what he was missing. And Moses prepared the people for it. Moses' ministry was over and over again a reflection of, I am not the one. He is the one. And when we mess that up, when we flip that order, when we say men like Robbie Zacharias are incapable of failing, when we say this local pastor, oh, he's just making a little bit of mistakes. He's just, he's human. Yeah, he may be human, but he's not fit for that role. Listen, God's word says they're held to a higher account. Who are we to lower the bar? Sorry. See, we look at the life of Moses, and over again, it's this repeated account. God doesn't need Moses. He doesn't need these people. But his compassion in Moses, working with a frail man and holding him by his mercy in there and holding him in account and holding his people account. Moses saying, there's one coming after me and he is greater. And what we find in the midst of this is Jesus arrives on the scene. And in John chapter 5 and verse 46, Jesus says of himself, if you didn't believe in Moses, then you won't believe in me because I'm the one that Moses spoke of. So what we see in the person of Jesus is that Jesus is always the one that Moses was merely a shadow of and always pointing to, don't look at me. I'm not your deliverer. He is. And then Jesus stands up and he says, don't look at him. Look at me. I am your deliverer. We see in the young life of Jesus, Herod intent upon holding with an iron fist onto his power, hair with an iron fist holding onto his authority, realizing he's been duped and misled by the wise men. So Herod says, oh, I'm going to take care of this. I know what Pharaoh did. Every male ch male-born child two and under, they're going to be killed. But what has God done? God cares for his de deliverer. God sends his deliverer into the land of Egypt so that his people might be preserved. God cares for the weak. And he cares for the weak by sending them Jesus and by preserving and caring for his life. And so he sends him into Egypt and he brings him back, out of, back up out of Egypt. God cares for and preserves the innocent. This is what God's heart is and this is where God asks our hearts to be as well. Jesus in Mark chapter 4. Mark chapter 4 verses 35 through 41. We see this remarkable thing. Jesus has been teaching and the text tells us that when evening came, he says to the disciples, listen, we need to go to the far side of the water. And so the disciples, seasoned, trained fishermen, many of them, they scurry into this boat with Jesus and they get out there. And verse 37 says, a great windstorm arose and the waves were breaking into the boat. So the boat was already filling up. The disciples are losing their minds. And where do we see Jesus? He's asleep. Jesus is catching this terrific cat nap. I mean, he is a child sleeping through screams, all these things. He's just over there going. 
you can't hear it because all it is is thunder and waves and the disciples are freaking out. So they go to him and they shake him and they say, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Sorry to disturb your rest. If you don't mind though, we're all about to die. Jesus takes time to stretch. He yawns two or three times. Does this number, wipes the sea from his face. And says he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea. Jesus didn't hold a staff out. Jesus didn't need to pray to God and say, God, do this. Jesus is God. So when he stands up, he speaks to the elements with power and authority. He says, peace be still. And we read, the wind ceased and there was a great calm. The disciples are thoroughly freaked out. They begin to turn to one another. And they ask this question that only has one answer. They say, who then is this that can control the wind and the waves? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God come in flesh, alone controls the elements. Moses, as he held his staff, was dependent upon the Lord to push back the wall of the sea to the left and to the right, caused by a strong east wind sent by the Lord. Moses is always pointing to Jesus. Jesus, in that moment, shows us his power. He shows us his majesty. Moses, in this terrible moment in Numbers chapter 20, we see he is frail. We see he is fallen. He is frustrated. For decades, he's left his people, and it's always been the same song and dance. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to die here? And in that moment of weakness and frustration, he strikes the rock. He takes credit for the Lord, and he rebukes God's people. Jesus is not a failure. Jesus does not disappoint. Jesus does not let us down. We read in Hebrews chapter 4 and verses 14 through 16. Since we have a great high priest. See the people of God had a high priest who come, could come before the Lord. But the author of Hebrews tells us, he says, we don't merely have a high priest, we have a great high priest. This is what got him there. He passed through the heavens. He says, this is where our high priest is. He is sitting at the right hand of God. He has overcome sin and death. He sits there triumphantly. This is who he is. He is Jesus, the Son of God. On the basis of these things then, let us hold fast our confession. You see, on the basis of Jesus, his good deed his perfect nature, his flawless acts, we find ourselves being strengthened. We find ourselves being encouraged. And we find ourselves in the midst of these things, not wavering in the midst of difficulties. He says, let us hold fast our confession. He says, listen, we don't have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. You see, there's this, there's this sense at which you look at Jesus and you say, I just can't get close to him because he's inapproachable. He's too high, he's too mighty. What we read of Jesus is that he experienced our frailty. He experienced our brokenness. He was subjected to the elements. He was subjected to our weariness. He was subjected to our setbacks. He was subjected to our disappointments. And in all those things, we see a Jesus who is open and accessible. But in those things, we see a Jesus who is perfect. Because what we find is in the midst of those things, he didn't lash out at the rock. He didn't look at the broken. He didn't look at the weary and say, get it all together. 
He didn't look at you struggling in your sin. He didn't look at you miring in your filth. He didn't look at your family breaking apart. He didn't look at your infidelity. He didn't look at you struggling with pornography and say, you are a radical disappointment to me. He looked at all of these things and he says, my perfection, my sinlessness covers your inadequacies. Come to me. Come to me. Tempted as we are in every way, but without sin. Look at verse 16. This is us. He says, let us then with confidence. Let us then with assurance. Let us then with certainty. Let us draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and that we may find grace to help in a time of need. God's people, as Moses led them, they had the possibility of coming close to the tent of meeting, but only if they were a priest could they ever get close to the altar, and only if they were the high priest could they come close to the mercy seat. This is what the author of Hebrews says. He says, it's not enough to stand outside the tent of meeting. It's not enough to come near to the altar. Come forward, grab hold of the throne of mercy. Grab hold of the mercy seat where God is. God, the heavenly Father, over the universe, looks at you struggling now, and he says, come to me. And there's a terrific number of things that the Lord has allowed to come our way this last year. We've seen businesses disappear overnight. We've seen fortunes amassed over decades turn to ash. We've seen people in perfect health have it seemingly taken from them, brought to their knees, and taken from this earth like that. All the while, God has not been unfaithful to us. God has not been far from us. And all the while in our struggles, and, and all the while in our weakness, this is what he's saying to us here and now. Hear this. Come near to me. Your spouse, your family, your pastor, your spiritual leader, all of these people are inadequate saviors. They cannot support you in the midst of your need. Come to me. So he finds us asking this question of ourselves. Will we come to him? And listen, if you don't know Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord, his word to you isn't get your life straight. It's your life could never be set straight. This is why my son was sent to die for you. Come to me. Christian, in the midst of these difficulties, it's not live better, be more perfect. It is come to me. In the midst of these things and at his throne, this is what we will find when we come to him. We will receive mercy and we will find grace in the midst of our time of need. Would you pray with me? God, you've allowed some of us to experience terrific weakness, disappointment, difficulty this year so that we might be disappointed when we turn everywhere else but you. So God, would you equip us with grace to come to you now? 
God, we are mothers and fathers whose children are rebelling. We are sons and daughters whose parents' marriages are falling apart. We are men and women, boys and girls, struggling in the midst of faithfulness. God, would you cause our hearts to be burdened, renewed with a reminder that we must come to you that you've already sent your son for us. Father God, we want to pray for those who've yet to submit their lives to you, that they've sought to live through this life without you. God, that in love, in the fullness of time, you sent your son Jesus to come to live a perfectly sinless life, to die in their place, to die in their stead, taking upon himself the penalty and the punishment for their sin, that they might be forgiven. And so God, today our prayer is that they would confess the name of Jesus, that they would turn from their sin, and they would experience the delights of your grace. So God, would you send your spirit to convict them concerning sin and righteousness. Father, would you continue to do our work in our heart as we turn ourselves to worshiping you through song. We submit these things to you in Christ's name. Amen.